Welcome to the Why God Why podcast. My name is Peter Englert. We are here with our fantastic producer, Nathan Yoder. And I am excited to welcome as a co-host for the very first time, the stupendous, I gotta work on my adjectives, Amanda D'Angelo. I'll take stupendous. Oh, look at that, applause and everything. (laughs) Well, there we go. I'm really excited about our topic today. Um, We've been working with IVP, uh, who's a publisher, and today's guest is Susan Maros. She wrote the book, Calling in Context. And the question that we're asking is, why does where I live matter? And I think the biggest reason why this conversation is important is coming off of the pandemic, we're kind of still in it, but even just this age old question, like, should I move somewhere? Should I build roots somewhere? You know, should I do this? I think that that's a big question. And I think Susan, um, we go about two to three steps deep. I think she goes about 12 steps deep. So that's what I'm most excited about this conversation. Great. Love that. All right. Well, take us away, Amanda. Yeah, Susan, I want to say that I have listened to some of the podcasts that you've been on and uh, read through a little bit of the book, and I'm just really inspired by your wisdom and your experiences that you share. So I'm excited for the conversation. Um, Why don't you share a little bit about your story and tell us about your faith journey, too? Thanks. So I'm a missionary kid. That's important. That's part of my context. Uh, And having grown up in my early years in Brazil, and then my family moved back to the United States, and I grew up mostly in Southern California, and that's more or less my home. It's one of those things when people ask me, where are you from? I'm like, oh, I'll define from. You know, because I was born in, in South Carolina. I grew up in Brazil, then in Southern California. So where am I from? Uh. In terms of faith journey, my parents being missionaries, obviously God was central to our family uh, and to my experience. Um, you know, I, I was in Sunday school as a kid and was invited to ask Jesus to live in my heart, which thinking as a literal kid, I thought, how does Jesus fit inside my body and my heart, you know? Uh, but but that relationship with Jesus as a child was important and then became important as an adult then um, to have a sense of, I think God has purpose for my life and how do I lean into that? Um, and probably the, then the short version of adulthood is some time in a mission organization, then seminary thinking I was going to be a pastor, then discovered, no, actually I'm not. I'm pastoral, but I'm not a pastor. I'm a teacher. And so began to teach and have been teaching for 25 years, but really interested in the formation of leaders and how does God shape and form us in our contexts for God's purposes. Mm. You know, I guess I'm just listening to you and it's just kind of hitting me now. Um, so I've grown up pretty much in the same region. Uh, I didn't grow up that far from Rochester. I've lived outside of there. Amanda has been a Buffalonian and now a Rochesterian. So as you come to this topic, I love what you even just asked the question or you even said, hey, where am I from? What do you mean by that? How did you personally engage this? Why does where I live matter? Because your home life was very different than ours. And I guess I'd like to hear you personally process that with our listeners. You know, there's layers to that. You know, so so there is 
the experience of having been a missionary kid and having returned to the U.S. and the reverse culture shock that we experienced. So I have a different experience of being U.S. American than somebody who has lived here for their entire lives, for example. Um, and so that, that established some kind of foundation. Uh, but it was really particularly as I was wrestling with helping people learn what is God calling me to and, and what is the path of my life? Um, and, and looking at their lives and how their lives have been shaped, that I began to pay more and more attention to context and to realize um, that there's there's individual diversity, certainly, you know, very much so of our, our particular experiences, even if we live in the same place. Uh, but then beyond that, racial, ethnic, cultural identity has an impact. Religious tradition has an impact. Um, socioeconomic status has an impact. Gender has an impact. Like uh, there are all these social location identifiers that flavor our understanding of who God is and who we are. And, and that because of my work with developing leaders, I became so interested in how God uses those contexts very deliberately and began to see it more and more in scripture, you know, God steps into human culture and addresses people in the midst of their family, in the midst of their culture, in the midst of their language. Uh, and that context really does matter. Mm. Yeah, that makes so much sense. Like I, my story is that I grew up um, in Niagara County. Like when people ask me, where are you from? I say, well, I'm originally from Niagara County. Um, but as an adult, I grew up in Buffalo. Um, and I definitely wrestled with the question of like, what am I called to do? What is my purpose? And it's just so interesting, you know, as I read your book and others like Garden City, I everyone always frames it within the context of career. It's always mm -hmm. like, what do I do as a job? But you paint a much bigger picture for us that it's way, there's way more to it than that. So um, what would you say are like the biggest blind spots that people face when they don't realize that their location plays a role in this? Yeah. Well, you've named a huge one, Amanda, that we assume that calling is about our job. Mm. Right. So, so sometimes I'll start my classes out and ask people in your church context, do you use the term calling or do you use the term vocation? And are they synonyms or are they two different things? Uh, and, and it really depends, you know, different traditions will use vocation. Some will use calling. Um, it, they are theologically they're synonyms because vocation comes from the Latin vocare, which means to call. So theologically, calling and vocation are synonyms. But we tend to, in the United States, we tend to think of vocation in terms of career. It's your job, mm -hmm. right? So that's one of our major blind spots, and that's cultural, mm. right? Not everybody everywhere, not everybody everywhere in the United States, let alone everybody everywhere in the world, thinks about calling in terms of job or career. And and we we don't think about how much our socioeconomic status and our citizenship, um, our, our racial, ethnic, cultural identity plays a part in shaping the assumption that calling is about career and how we, how our sense of, oh, I have to know what that is. I have choices. How do I know what the right decision is to make, right? Is very influenced by our context. 
not everybody in the U.S., let alone in the rest of the world, has options for what career. You know, for, for, for a lot of people in a lot of places, you need to get a job to put a roof over your head. You need to get mm. a job to help put food on the table for your family. And, mm. and it isn't a choice. I don't choose my career. I, I take the opportunity that's in front of me. Um, or in other contexts, there may be more choice, but it's a more communal decision. You know, it's less yeah. about what do I want? What do I find fulfilling? Um, what, what would be satisfying for me, which is a very U.S. American individualistic way of thinking about things. And, and I'm not, I don't want to delegitimize that because that is part of our cultural context. That is part of how we think. It's just a recognition that there, there may be ways in which as we're processing that, because our context has shaped us to ask specific questions and to assume that everything outside of those questions isn't calling, that there may be things that God is doing that we can't even recognize because our culture, our context has impressed upon us the prioritizing of certain questions over other questions. And, and, and so we have the blind spots specifically around occupation. That's a huge one. Individualism is another blind spot. I would say that it's about me. What, what do I need to do? What is, what is God called me to do for my ministry? What am I supposed to do with my life? Use for certain pronouns. And we may think about it, what am I supposed to do for the common good, which is at least a little communal. That's good. Uh, but we don't, what, what about, what is my community called to? You know, if mm. I'm part of a, of a, a community of faith and part of a congregation, do we ask the question, what is unique about this particular body in this particular location? What is God calling us to in our neighborhood? And mm. how am I a part of that? Like, we don't think that way because that's just not the way we think as U.S. Americans. Um, and no. so, you know, what are we missing uh, of what God is doing? Because we're emphasizing my call. What am I supposed to do? And especially what's my career path? So I want to have some fun with you because you've kind of brought this up and I'm actually willing to answer this question too. Maybe we'll have Amanda, but you know, knowing what you know now and after writing this book and talking with all these students, what would you have told 24 year old Susan about calling in context? You know, because you even mentioned, you said, Hey, I thought I was going to be a pastor. Now I'm a professor, but I have a pastoral bent. What do you think you would have told with all these blind spots, you know, just with your experience, maybe you had a better perspective because you lived internationally. What would you have told yourself at 24 years old? Um, the main thing I would have told myself actually is relax. <laughs> it's going to be okay. God is at work. Um, and maybe, maybe I can add this to, to my response to Amanda's question about blind spots is that we, focus on knowing, mm. at least for a lot of us, I, I see that anxiety. I need to know, how do I know, you know, how do I know what my call is? How do I know what I'm supposed to do? And, um, it's almost as if we think that God is passively sitting at a distance with a clipboard and a checklist, just waiting for us to make the wrong decisions. Like, okay. Scratch that one off. I can't do anything with that one. You know, I, I don't know. We have these weird notions of how God is involved. So I, the number one thing, Peter, I would say to my 
to my 24 year old self is it's going to be okay. Mm -hmm. You're all right. You know, do what you can be faithful. God is at work. It's a lifetime journey. Mm -hmm. Um, it, it will be, you will have moments of clarity. You will have moments of absolute lack of clarity and God will be at work in all of it. It's going to be okay. Mm. I really like that. I think that that's super helpful for our listeners. You know, you live in Southern California, serve at Fuller Theological Seminary. You're writing this book because you have to help these students who are feeling this anxiety. And I think you even mentioned to me, and tell me if I'm wrong, that you have students now that are entering seminary that aren't sure about even becoming pastors. How do you live out the principles Mm -hmm. of what you're saying? Hey, before we think about your career, whether you're going to be a pastor, a leader of a nonprofit, whatever it like, okay, let's, let's look at this blind spot as an American. Let's look at this blind spot through the lens of individualism. Let's look at your history at home. To, how do you walk students through this so that they can have a clearer picture maybe of what God's doing in their life and actually focus on the right things, not necessarily be anxious about the wrong things? Yeah. In some ways, um, I know there are blind spots there, but I don't lead in with the blind spots, mm-hmm. right? I, I, I try to lead in with reflection on context. So the book reflects that. You know, there's some discussion questions at the end of each chapter. Those reflect questions that I ask in class, exercises I have students do. Um, reflect on your family. Reflect on your context. Reflect on your experience. Um, what are the stories in your family? Who are the heroes in your family or in your church, in your faith tradition? Um, what are what is your sense of who you are and who God is that's been shaped by that? Uh, and some of those along the way you discover, okay, there were some blind spots, but you also, I also hope people discover, oh, God was at work. You know, can you see God's fingerprints in your family? Uh, maybe there were things in your family that were traumatic or tragic um, and they shaped you in some really painful ways. Uh, ha- has that been a space that you've invited God into? And how has God been at work in that trauma? Uh, not that, not that I'm not so Calvinist that I think God created the trauma on purpose. And, and, and I don't go there and I usually say something about that with my students, but, but I want students to see that the painful and the good of our experience, God is in the midst of that and God being endlessly creative and endlessly redemptive weaves those things together, uses them to shape us, uses them to create distinctive gifts and capacities and, and personality and perspective. Um, so that kind of reflection is something I engage in with my students a lot. What, what are the distinctive gifts that you bring to, to, to the body of Christ? What are the distinctive gifts your community brings to the body of Christ. Um, and what does that suggest about God already at work so that it's not, um, somehow God hasn't been present and I have to discern God because I need to step into what God is wanting to do. But the recognition, whatever is ahead of you is, is contiguous with, it's consistent with what God has already been doing. You know, God's already at work 
you are already living into your calling in some way, whether you recognize it or not. So can we, can we start to see God's fingerprints, including our background, our family, our nationality, our racial identity, you know, whatever, all of, our, of the layers of our sense of identity and recognize the particularities of who God has created us to be so that we can reflect on the current moment and say, so what is, mm. what are the implications of that for what faithfulness looks like right now and what step mm. God is asking me to take? Mm. Yeah, I was actually just going to say that, that I th- because I struggle with this, that I can share a little bit of my story too. But knowing that if I could have just told myself as 24-year-old Amanda, just take the next best step that God is leading. Yeah. Like what is the open door around you? And I think you hit on something very prevalent to say that we are so self-focused to say, what is my calling? What am I doing? What am I gifted at? Like what is what's my dreams and my ambitions? Instead of thinking what opportunities are around me and who are my people and what can I do right with where I'm at? Um, Because my story is that I was saved at 13, but I didn't really start living for the Lord until I was 17. I was a freshman in college. My um, track was that I was going to be an elementary education teacher. And I was like, but I want to be in vocational ministry. So I actually got out of it, was in liberal arts, had more anxiety because I was like, what am I going to do now? I have no idea. Went back into elementary education, graduated, and I said, whew, okay, I'm good. Now I can be in vocational ministry. I applied to Liberty University to start an MDiv. Did not work out. And I was like, okay, what am I going to do now? So I kept praying, God, wherever, whatever, however, whatever, I will do it for you. And there was a school I was subbing at just a couple times and they, um, they called me and said, we're looking for a part-time fourth grade teacher. Are you interested? And I said, well, I can't say no now. Like I, I got to do this. And I started this whole journey of being, I was a fourth grade teacher for eight years and I loved every moment of it and eventually got in vocational ministry, which I'm in now. And I saw like my goal was to, and desire is to take people further in their faith and to share Christ with them. Um, and I could totally do that in the context of fourth grade. And I didn't realize that. So um, Susan, what would you say is the definition, if we can define it, of calling and purpose so that people can rephrase this and actually approach it in the right way? Hmm. Well, I I do want to take seriously whatever the definition is in a person's context. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because you're going to have to be able to communicate to your family, to your community, your sense of call in a way that they can understand. So bearing in mind, however, it's defined in a context has significance, right? So you can, you can at least interact with people in a meaningful way. I I tend to focus vocational formation as a, it's part and parcel with our discipleship. Mm. It's our living out of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And how are we perceiving and responding to God's invitation to participate with God's work in the world? Mm. And whatever the form that takes, our participation with God's work in the world, whatever form that takes, that's our calling. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that can be, I tend to think of it as um, more of an internal compass than a destination hmm. so that I live out my calling in the vari- in variety of roles, 
um, I'll have students occasionally I have students say to me, oh, it's just so clear you're called to be a professor. And I don't argue with them because they're meaning to bless me. You know, they're meaning to say, um, I find, I find you a good professor. I find I learn from you. You know, this has been, I, I see your gifting at work in this role. Um, but I don't feel called quote unquote to be a professor. I feel called to develop leaders. Mm. And, and I do that in the, in the role of professor, but I also do it raising my kids. I also do it participating in my congregation. I also do it connecting to my neighborhood. You know, I, it affects everything of who I am. It's that inner compass that says, this is what my life is about. This is how I participate with God's work in the world. This is my distinctive participation. Mm. Uh, so that's kind of a long answer. It's not a succinct definition. I think I probably have something more succinct in the book and I'm realizing I defined it there somewhere. How did I define it in the book? Uh, but that that's how I think about it. Well, and I think what I hear you saying, and I loved Amanda's question, is what I hear you saying is when you start to go down the road of having a conversation on calling, you have to stop the conversation wherever you are and say, hey, I need you to define calling for me. And let me get a little pastoral here for a moment because I think pastors do this huge disservice. Like on one hand, they're like, well, calling in the Bible is about who you become and it's about, you know, uh, becoming, living out the fruits of the spirit. And those are very important. I don't want to discount that, but that's, that's very broad to what the other side, which is calling like, I am going to go to college at the university of Rochester. I'm going to go work for strong medical. And like, so how come do you think that we find it so hard to live, I don't want to say the messy middle, but managing that tension of being over-specific and under-specific when we think yeah. of calling with a moving definition? Yeah. Wow, that's, a, that's, like a, that's like a golden question. If I could have a really good answer for that, that'd probably be helpful. Huh? <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I wonder... If at least a part of it is, some of it is that this kind of tyranny of this of certainty, mm. and mm. and maybe that's just a human thing. I'm not sure how much that's U.S. American, how much that's just human. Um, that we we desire to know and to be secure and certain that we're on the right path. Mm. You know, are we doing what we're supposed to be doing? Um, and so there's that anxiety that if I don't, I'm, you know, I'm going to miss it or something's going to happen. And so when we look at scripture, you know, there is a certain amount. So this reformed kind of two stage notion of calling is you're primarily called to be a member of the body of Christ. So there's that, you know, what you were mentioning is that sort of pastoral. It's about being a disciple of Jesus. It's about being a being a person of God, being a part of the body of Christ, you know, growing in the fruits of the spirit, you know, this kind of general sense. And then there's this secondary calling of the particularity of the role you're supposed to have. I mean, that's kind of a typical reformed way of framing it. And a lot of the calling literature, vocation literature comes from that perspective. Um, that does feel fuzzy if it's like, so I'm supposed to be a child of God. Okay. Yay. As far as I know, I'm doing that. Um, and now what? Um, 
how much of that is cultural? I don't know. How much of that's human? How much of that is developmental? You know, mm. when you think about development of spiritual formation across time, you know, there is, there's an appropriate place for simply reflecting on what is it? Jesus chose me. And that's amazing. You know, and for that to be the focus of my life, like th there's an, that's, that's an appropriate place for people to be. It's an appropriate place for people to be in that sort of go, go, I'm serving, not show up at church. That's a stereotypical one, right? You're just supposed to show up at church whenever the doors are open and serve in any way possible. And, and, uh, sometimes calling in a church context devolves into sign up for more volunteering at church, mm. right? Um, we wouldn't know anything that's about also that appropriate. here. <laughs> uh, you know, th that's that, to have a stage of our lives where we do that. Um, but I'm thinking particularly of um, Hagberg and Gulick's book, uh, The Critical Journey. You know, and they talk about coming to a, a, a stage in our lives where we hit the wall and the doing and doing and doing, it just isn't enough. And we go deep into the ambiguity and the questions and the wondering. Uh, and particularly for people who come from backgrounds like I, like I come from, which is a white evangelical conservative background, um, doubt is, is seen as the antithesis of being a faithful Christian, mm. right? Ambiguity is to be avoided. Um, and so we run away from, it's like, no, just give me the answer. Tell me the right path. What is it I'm supposed to do? Uh, but it's God's grace and invitation that invites us into the wilderness. It's just we have a hard time in our communities finding that to be legitimate work of God. You know, we, we see it more as, oh, you've wandered away from faith, or you're you're on the slippery slope, or you're in a dangerous place, or if you're Pentecostal like some of my students are, you know, it's it's an attack of the enemy, or you know, it's anything but. Maybe God is inviting you to yet a deeper journey that embraces the the ambiguity and the uncertainty and the mystery of the work of God. Um, but that's an uncomfortable space, and we tend not to enter that. We want to. We want the five step plan for knowing mm. God's purpose for your life. You know, so I, I want to kind of transition topics because um, it. We saw at, during the being in the pandemic, you know, people made some like fairly radical decisions. Um, and I'll even say during the shutdown and just you, it, it's interesting how you're able to kind of, hey, this is part of my journey. I'm a white conservative evangelical. And I, I just think that that's powerful because again, if you don't, as my counselor wife would say if you can't name it you can't deal with it yeah. and so just trying to see yeah. through the perspective so you know we had a lot of people in the pandemic make these decisions about moving like for instance in rochester it was like i don't like the weather so i'm gonna move and people also made decisions hey i am gonna go after that dream job that might be in another part of the country i'm willing to leave my family I can almost feel Dead Poet Society, Robin Williams saying Carpe Diem, Seize the Day. And, you know, I, I guess I just wonder, and I'm definitely biased towards, like, I want to be in an area for a long time. I feel like that's where you grow roots. I feel like 
you know, I lived in Missouri for five months. Um, they didn't quite know what to do with me, you know, as an upstate New Yorker, maybe that's it. But, you know, I, I just kind of feel called to doing roots. I also acknowledge there's healthy people that they're called to move. I guess when, when people are as mobile as they are right now, what are they missing? And if people aren't willing to leave their context, what are they missing? Because it seems like, and also I'll, I'll end it with this because I'm just trying to verbally process as I listen to you. Like mm-hmm. there were a lot of people that actually moved home, like not just college students, but families. And they just said, hey, if there was ever a shutdown again, I'd want to be near families. So how have you kind of processed this whole location thing, knowing that sometimes our roots need to go deep and we need to stay a long time? Other times, it's okay to move somewhere else. I don't know. You're a professor. You, you take the jumbles and, you know, you, you put the pastor in his place <laughs> in a good way. So there we go. I'll, I'll, I'll leave that for you. Yeah. You know, that's, that, what, a, what a good question. What a rich question. For a lot of U.S. Americans, I think it's an outworking of our cultural individualism where we see the individual person as being the fundamental building block of society. You know, so let me contrast that with a more collectivist culture that sees the group as the fundamental building block of society. And you are a person defined Mm. by being a member of the group. So, so these are kind of the, the, it's a continuum. It's not either, or it's sort of a continuum. And, and even within the U S there's more collectivist, cultures and groups. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm from, um, Swiss and German background. So Northern European background, we tend to be particularly on the, on the individualist side. Uh, and, and it does, we've learned a certain rootlessness That's part of our culture, right? So I can personally individually have a sense of connection to my individual nuclear family. I may or may not have a sense of rootedness in a particular point of geography, uh, but it, it's sort of the, like this individual choice. I see it, I can, I can pick up and move. I can go be myself wherever. It, it's an outworking of that individualistic way of thinking about ourselves. Um, and that has a dark side and a light side, I think. You know, there is a certain mobility, a flexibility, a capacity to um, look at the potentials and the challenges of life and say, Hey, I'm going to tackle this bit over here, right? That, that cultures and groups that are much more rooted in the group or much more rooted in geography, uh, might have a greater challenge in actually taking initiative to move towards tackling something because of the rootedness. So maybe that's the light side of that rootlessness, but the dark side of the rootlessness is, is an mm. epidemic of loneliness. It's an epidemic of alienation, which is part of what came out in, we have a, a, a disease pandemic, but we have mm. this loneliness pandemic that, that cropped up because of our disconnectedness. Uh, and, and, you know, as you mentioned, some people decided, I'm going to move back home. I want to be near people. You know, so it's a reawakening of a desire, a need, a human need, fundamental need for connection and connectivity and relationship. Um, how does that work out in an individual life? I don't know. It's what was God doing? You know, what's God saying? What, what resonates in your spirit? What, 
and what is your sense of your family? You know, what's the sense of your faith community? Are you in a faith community that is asking the questions of discerning? What is God's particular invitation to us in this moment in time? Uh, that's been fascinating to me, by the way. You, you know, you're speaking of shutdown and COVID and everything. Mm-hmm. Fascinating to me to watch how different churches re- have responded, right? And it's like some people have been very, um, oh no, they're trying to. The government's trying to shut down the churches. Well, okay, so you're not meeting in a building, or you have limitations on meeting in a building. How is that shutting down the church? That tells me something about your theology. If we can't meet together without masks on and social distancing in a building means shut down. You're, defi- you're defining church as sitting in rows in a building, listening to somebody on a platform. We have a bigger theological problem here, you know, but at the same time, I've also seen church communities really wrestle with that and get creative of, well, what does it mean to be the people of God and how do we care for our are the people in our faith community, how do we care for the people in our geographical community in the midst of these circumstances? And what does it look like to be church in an era like this? You know, how can we press into this as a, as an opportunity, not just an interruption to life as usual, uh, in which, which case, you know, people are eager to let's get back to church, quote unquote back. Right. And it's like, well, aren't we always, don't we think church is where people got our, um, anyway, I'm, I'm getting off calling specifically. I'm getting into the implications of, on our ecclesiology and everything else, but you know, you ask a professor and it's going to, it's going to get into theology. Sorry. No, that's good. I think you bring up so many good points of us being self-aware of what we've been through, um, especially with COVID and how that's affected us. And I love the idea of thinking like how have churches approached this and how have they handled this? And um, so with all that being said, you posed some very good questions of how to process these things. What tools or other questions or suggestions would you have for people who are working out um, this question that they have of how to realize like their hometown or where they're living right now affects them and in their calling and purpose? Like how do they work through that to get to a healthier spot and a better spot that they can approach it in the right way. I think a starting point is to, to reflect on, do you actually believe that God is in your context? You know, is Mm. that just a head theology or do you believe that with your gut? And, And maybe that's a place to, to ponder, you know, to allow God's, work by the spirit in your own soul. Do you, do you actually believe God is present in your family, in your church, in your neighborhood, in your city? Um, because it's going to affect, you know, how, how you process and whether you look for or see God at work in that context. Uh, but given that, given that as a starting point, um, I, I kind of encourage people to kind of, kind of get your anthropologist on like, in, mm-hmm. Get curious, get, get exploring in your community. So, so start to take a look around, maybe, maybe take a walk or a drive or go into a public location and just sit for an hour and, and look at your community from the perspective of if, if I, if I hadn't, if I weren't living here already, what would I notice? 
you know, what do I notice about the buildings? What do I notice about the people? What do I notice about what people wear and how they behave? What do I notice about the design of the buildings and what signs are present and what, what objects are displayed, you know, kind of get anthropological about it, you know, do some participant observation and notice, notice what you see and then notice the assumptions that you have about it. Mm. You know, um, if you're watching people walk by and you make assumptions about who they are and what they do, what their occupations are, notice that. And, and then ask yourself, why do I make that assumption? You know, what is present here that, that I'm assuming about that? So then also notice things like, are there, I don't know, historical plaques in the neighborhood that talk about, you know, this building is the site of blah, 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 or, you know, this was founded in 1871 or, you know, whatever, you know, notice what's present. Um, local uh, historical societies can be an interesting place. They would just adore somebody showing up <laughs> at their doorstep saying, I would like to learn more about the area. Are you kidding me? They would just salivate over somebody actually showing interest in the town, you know? So start to learn the stories or sit down with people in your family and, and ask them, what stories do you know about our family? How did we come to live here? You know, what's our history? Um, discovering history of family, um, both what is present and what isn't. Like I have, sometimes I have students say to me, well, I don't know anything about my family history and nobody wants to talk about it. Okay, there's a reason why they don't want to talk about it. You know, can, can you get curious and start to explore maybe why they don't want to talk about it? So uh, an example of um, somebody that I know who's explored that is in the book. Phil Allen is one of the cult stories in the book. And he did a lot of exploration. He would ask his grandmother about his grandfather who was killed when Phil's father was a young child. And the family wouldn't talk about it. And it was many years later that he, he was able to talk with his grandmother, talk with his uncle, talk with other family, talk with his father, and find out more about the story of his grandfather, who was, who was lynched. And, and to find out more of the story, he made it into a book and he made it into a documentary. I don't, I don't expect everybody to go quite those lengths, uh, although you're welcome. Like Stories are worth telling. But it's that kind of curiosity of... Okay, what's the story? And even when the stories aren't available, that also is a story. Mm -hmm. uh, so these are some places to at least start exploring. And on the foundation of, do I actually believe God is present? You mm -hmm. know, is that just a theology of my head? Or do I really in my guts believe God is present here in my context, in my neighborhood? And so exploring stories helps to unearth Okay, what's been here? What has shaped me for good and for ill? And then I can start in those contexts to discern, is there something in particular that God is inviting me to do as a, as a result of these things that I see about myself, about my neighborhood, about my city, mm. about what, God, what has happened here that is God-ordained and what has happened here that, that is contrary to God's purposes and can, can I discern all of that and start to, in that context, be um, open to what's, what else God might be saying to me? So I, I actually want to test something. Um, 
you know, just to see, because I, I think I, I do some of this, but I, I'd be curious to get your thoughts. So I grew up in Endicott, New York. Um, I grew up two blocks away from where um, a little company called International Business Machine, also known as IBM, started. And, you know, when I was in high school, IBM actually left Endicott mostly. There's a few offices and stuff there. But the the reoccurring message that was given, um, you know, just to my neighbors, to my friends, to my family was, you know, you can't trust leaders. And the Endicott and the triple cities where I grew up, this was a town where the CEOs invested a ton into the community. We're, we're one of the only places that have free carousels during the summer because, um, George F. Johnson, who owned a shoe company said, I always want these to be free. This is for people, whole long story, but there's this distrust in leadership. And I found it very interesting this last week, I was listening to a podcast with the CEO, Lou Gerstner, who was the really the person that made the decision to do all these downsizes in IBM. And so he makes this comment. He's like, I come in, like we're losing a billion dollars. We're, and he had to make these tough decisions. And I'm no economist, I'm no business person, but you know, what, what began to hit me, and this is kind of why, you know, living in upstate New York, Rochester had Kodak, Kodak's been through their pain, but you even just take these companies that, were beacons and supportive in the community and then they leave, you know, there was never number one, a collective grief of, mm. this is a very unfortunate situation, it's painful. But then number two, like, we don't always get the whole story. Um, you know, my family was affected by the decision that Lou Gerstner made, but like to hear his side of the story, like there's something about having that perspective and kind of saying, and even I use this as a pastor at a church in Rochester, like, hey, you know, this is a place where Kodak used to be king and they went through trials and there was a lot of trust lost. And as a leader, when I walk people through change, I have to remember that. I don't know. Again, just I have fun with a professor. I feel like we're like at the coffee shop or something talking, but that's kind of where I feel like I'm trying to process, hey, this is the history. And it's yeah. kind of hard to it's kind of hard to grieve layoffs. Like, you know, maybe we should have church services that we grieve layoffs or lament layoffs. You know, they're mm -hmm. not always the no one chooses those, but sometimes they have to be done. And that's a whole nother podcast or something. But I, I guess where I'm trying to go, like, is that the type of work you're asking of people to really dig down deep in the history and kind of say, hey, this affects you more than you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's a great example. You know, and that that's the kind of work that we need to do as leaders. It, it, we help to help people make sense Mm. of their context and experience, you know, and, and the history of what's gone on and what's been significant and what, what has shaped our town, uh, it, that does shape what our life experience, but also our assumptions about our life experience, right? Mm. You know, we, we've, we've made sense of that in some ways. And, and unfortunately, too often we separate, you know, well, that was really just secular, quote unquote, right? That, that's just about the market. You're not, you're not supposed to, in church, we're not supposed to think about that. You know, we're supposed to be thinking about the kingdom. Well, 
except that Jesus said the kingdom is here, right? And he mm. demonstrated the kingdom in practical ways. Um, and so that's the sense-making work of leadership is helping a community think about its story and its history and how, how did God show up there or how did we feel God's absence there? Mm. Uh, what, what do we need to name to be able to mourn? Uh, or what do we need to name to be able to claim it as, as part of the resource we have for moving forward? All of that is profound leadership work. Mm. Wow. Susan, this, this conversation has gone by way too fast. Uh, <laughs> I think we're, we're going to have more and I feel like we only touched the surface. I, I think we're, where I want to close. Cause I think this is a great place. Cause um, so I want to close kind of with two questions. I, I think what I'm hearing, so number one, a way our listeners can practically apply this is by the book. By the way, um, we've worked with IVP, and if you go to IVP, the website after this airs, use the code YGUIDE, you get 30%. Um, I think what I'm hearing from you, read the book, but it's also know your own history, know your neighborhood's history, know mm -hmm. your county's history um and then you know begin to you know begin really listening to the people that are in your circle but even more importantly the people outside of your circle not just vocationally and calling i'll use those synonymously right now but also to really value what your community matters and even to see where the gospel can make changes is there any other way that you would articulate that or kind of give practical advice uh, to our listeners right now. That's a great summary. I like it. Um, <laughs> probably, probably the one additional, maybe word of advice, caution isn't quite the right word, but maybe, a, well, you know, when you drive down the road and you see the sign that says falling rocks, mm -hmm. right? You know, and so this is kind of a falling rocks warning. This is, it would be a, a caution, I guess I would give is that if you're going to look honestly at your family's history and the history of your neighborhood, you're going to find out painful things mm. as well as good things. It won't be just painful things, but there will be painful things. And I think one of the pieces of advice or ca caution, uh, maybe, maybe it's not the best word because I don't want to scare people, but I do want to normalize it. It's okay when you start to discover things they're uncomfortable. We, that's one of the reasons why family doesn't tell their stories, right? Mm. There's something that we're trying to put behind us and it's painful or it's shameful or it's stressful or it was traumatic or there's, there's some reason when families don't tell stories, there's a reason for it. And when families tell stories and prioritize some over others, it's because the stories that are, you know, this is a good story. This is the story we want to embrace. Those are the stories that get told, you know? And so sometimes there are stories that don't get told because there's some reason why we're, we're avoiding them. Uh, so that's okay. God is there also. Mm. God can take you through discovering things about your family. God can take you through discovering things about your neighborhood. And when you stand in the light, when, when the, truth of your experience, your family's experience, your, your neighborhood's experience, your national experience, when we can bring that into the light, 
then we can start to take steps towards reconciliation, towards restoration, towards healing, towards God's redemptive work. But when we hide from our context and, and disassociate from it, then they're, then they're just as automatically a limit to, mm. to where God's kingdom can break in because we're hiding from certain things. So that, that would just be my additional word. Amen to what you just said. And then also a, a caution and encouragement and normalization that if you're finding out things that are uncomfortable and disorienting, God is there also. Mm. And God will walk with you through it to bring you to a place where you can stand in the light, both the the sin and the and the rejoicing, both you know both the the pain and and the joy, uh, and and have all of that be resourced for responding faithfully to God's invitation to participate with God's work in the world. Man, what a great place uh, to close with our final question. So. Uh, Susan, here's the question we ask always. So Amanda and I will answer it. And then like you've done this whole episode, you'll clean up the mess that we leave because that's what great professors do. So um, you'll clean up any heresy or anything. But so we're asking the question, uh, what does Jesus have to say about why does where I live matter? So who's going first, me or you? I'll go first. I just have a couple Bible verses that come to mind, um, especially you know, when we ask, like, what would we say to our younger selves? Um, I would say, like, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not upon your own understanding, and all your ways acknowledge him, and mm-hmm. he will make your path straight. And I just love, Susan, that you always kept up bringing us back to, like, is God there? Like, do you actually believe that he's there? And if I um, trust in him and realize that I can, he will make my path straight. And it is when we walk a path, it's every single step. It's not we're leaping, you know, it's it's one step at a time. So Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. And then um, something that I've been referencing recently is uh, man plans his way, but the Lord determines his steps. So um, I can make plans, but I trust in God for what the destination will be. Mm. Man, I, I really like, really like, you've, you've had to live that out a couple past couple of years so yeah yeah. um so you know as i've listened to susan looked at her resource and other resources you know i know that some of you are de-churched and unchurched and you know what i'd say to you is if you read the bible location is actually really important you know there's one time where jesus actually points out to where a tower crumbled and and it killed people and you know they talk about the woman being at the well and you know we don't hear a lot of Jesus talking about, uh, you know, carpentry and maybe we'll find out more in heaven. I find that interesting, but you know, the, the writers of scripture thought it was pretty important to drop some of these little hints at that the actual readers would engage those places. So when you do this deep work, even if it's disorienting and painful and uncomfortable, you know, you're bringing the gospel in it. And I think that there's certain things that God wants to do in our lives as personally, in our neighborhoods, in our cities, in in our counties, that that in in opening this door, you can actually experience healing. And that's kind of the the big takeaway that I'm taking away from this episode with Susan. But Susan, you get the last word. Yeah. Well, one of the, one of the things I think about is how often Jesus encountered people on the way, mm. right, and where they were. 
you know, so there's the paralyzed man by the pool. There's, there's, you mentioned the Samaritan woman at the well, or, you know, just often Jesus meets people on the way and asks them questions, you know, that get really, um, invites them to, to connect with their own hearts and to say, you know, what Jesus is asking, what do you want me to do for you? You know, there's this engagement and encounter, um, and even, I mean, the fact that when God became incarnate, God, God became a specific human being in a specific time and place, mm. you know, says that location matters, says that human culture matters. You know, God didn't give disembodied revelation. God became a person mm. and, and spoke a language and engaged and existed within a culture and a religious context. And, and so... I think there's all of these encounters that Jesus had suggest to us, God still steps into our context mm. and will meet us wherever we're sitting and will engage us with questions of, you know, we, we those, those kinds of provocative questions that Jesus asked people that brought up their deepest heartfelt yearnings and longings and hopes um, that, Jesus still does that. Mm. God still steps into our context and does that. Susan, thank you so much for joining us. As a reminder, you can go to IVP or I always say IVPress.com, I think, and you can uh, use the code YGOD. You'll get 30% off this great book. Susan, if people want to find you, what's the best way to find you? Other than going to well, Southern can... California and visiting you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, come to Fuller Seminary. Um, <laughs> no. You can find me at SusanLMaros.com. Um, I'm also on Facebook at Susan L. Maros and Twitter at Susan L. Maros. So those are places that people can find me. All the things. And to find us, go to WhyGotWhyPodcast.com. You can get this episode and many others just by clicking the subscribe button, and you'll get that from there. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope you all have a wonderful day. <laughs>